Hi guys, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Talking with TK. G'day guys, welcome to episode 130 of Talking with TK. I'm your host Tristan Cannell. We're going to be switching up a little bit today. We've had plenty of NRL and rugby league legends on of late, so I thought let's change it up and I brought I'm going to bring on Patrick Johnson, Australia's fastest ever human over 100 meters. He holds a record at 9.93, which he set a few years ago now in Japan, but I'm pretty sure he's the only one to ever run sub 10. He did have that, you know, enormous rivalry in the late nineties and two thousands with with Matt Shervington, and what a rivalry it was. They did really make each other better, and you know, in terms of track and field in Australia, especially the men's game in the hundred, it's not huge. So it was great to see those guys, you know, raise the profile and have such a great rivalry over, over the years. He's got a great story, and when you consider he started, I think he was like twenty six years old. It, it was quite late in his especially in an athlete's life. To see what he achieved was was absolutely fantastic. He nearly actually played in the NRL for both Canberra and North Queensland. So they both wanted him, and he's got an amazing backstory. So stay tuned for a great episode ahead. Guys, just a big shout-out to everyone tuning in. You know, you made the season start of Season 3 absolutely fantastic. Again, numbers through the roof. If you haven't tuned in yet, I've had George Rose, Danny Badiris, and Craig Wing to kick off Season 3. So check it out at www.talkingwithtk.com or you'll find all the episodes pretty much anywhere where you'll get your podcast app. So on your podcast app, my apology. Definitely get in touch. Plenty of people reaching <clears throat> excuse me, reaching out and introducing themselves. So send me an email, old school, Tristan at talkingwithtk.com. You can track me down on social media, like the pages on Twitter and Facebook. It's just talking with TK and definitely direct message me on there. Love having a yarn. Let me know where you're listening to the show and definitely let me know who you would like to hear for season three and of course for season four. All right, guys, excited for today's episode and I introduce Patrick Johnson. All right, guys, my special guest today is Patrick Johnson. Patrick is the fastest Australian over 100 metres with his impressive run of 9.93 seconds being run in Mido in Japan in 2003. With this accomplishment, Patrick became the first man of non-African ancestry to break 10 seconds and at the time was the 17th fastest time in history and 38th man to break 10 seconds. He's a dual Olympian representing Australia at the 2000 Games in Sydney and 2004 Games in Athens. Today, he's an ambassador for the Callum, Callum Deadly Choices, a leadership consultant for the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance in Northern Territory, and he's also a sports presenter at ABC Grandstand. I'm honoured to welcome to the podcast, PJ Patrick Johnson. Welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks, uh, TK. Really honoured to be a part of it and, um, you know, just sort of exciting to sort of have a yarn and uh, talk about some of the things and over the years and what I do now. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to share your story, mate. Let's start first things first, because you had a very, very interesting childhood, and you've got a very interesting backstory. So tell me a little bit about being born in Cairns and also growing up in far north Queensland. 
Yeah, so my, my life, um, it could be a little bit different. Um, I was born on a speedboat en route to Cairns Base Hospital. Um, there's a little place, a uh, mission called Yarraba, which is probably about an hour and a half outside Cairns. And, of course, the fastest way, to, uh, of course, when my mum was um, in labour was, of course, by speedboat, um, direct route from Yarraba off to Cairns, which, unfortunately, um, well, fortunately, uh, I didn't wait because um, maybe it's the speed on the boat. Um, and I was born, hence, on a speedboat, which is on my birth certificate. The need for I, speed, mate. Well, I thought everyone was born on speedboats. And, uh, and, and of course, um, from there, um, unfortunately, my mum passed away when I was two years old in a car crash. Yep. And um, I basically, uh, my old man took me on a boat. And I lived on a boat for about 17 years, which I thought everyone did, um, because I actually thought it was the norm, um, that you live on a boat and go to school and, and, and go fishing. Your your dad's uh, Irish immigrant too, correct? Yes, uh, from County Carlos. So he came, oh, probably in the, the 50s there, came across. Um, and, of course, um, he fell in love with my mum when he was working. Um, of course, in, in the 70s and the 60s and 70s at the time, I think uh, it was that, that sense where you can work anywhere. You know, you rock up to a job and work for a day and get paid. Yep. And you didn't have to have all the skills and papers, but... You know, if you showed a bit of initiative, and uh, and he was a tricks of all trade, you could say he was a mechanic, baller maker, chef, shearer. Uh, I think that day and age, you, you had to be everything. Yeah, absolutely. So, given you know, you know, you just mentioned unfortunately your mother passing away so early. You know, that's not something easy for a child to go through as as well. What age did your your father tell you that what actually happened? Well, it must have been probably when I was a bit uh, around about. Probably seven. I think it was just coming to because I always wondered why it was just me and my old man. You know, I mean, and of course, everyone's you know, you come up Mother's Day. You know, um, you're bringing your mum mum in to talk, and I was like, well, no, my mum's passed away. So it was funny because you know, at the end of the day, I sort of had to learn fairly early the understanding of what that meant. Um, yeah. Because you had Mother's Days, Father's Days, and you know, there'd be a, a you know a light comment where we like, oh, where's your mum? You know what I mean? Yeah, and like uh, she's in heaven. You know, it's like oh, you know, it's always uh, that. That's that, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a simple, harmless sort of question because you don't you don't sort of think that somebody's passed away or anything like that. You know what I mean? Absolutely um, not. But, yeah, and that's that's tough for a kid to to handle, especially when you see other people with their mums and things like that. Yeah, and I think you know I've got to give credit to my old man. I mean, he was able to um, look after you know. Probably, I was probably a bit of a, a rat bag in the sense, uh, making noise and running around, probably uh, stir crazy on a little boat. Uh, but, you know, credit to him to be able to be my father and also a mother to me as well. So really, you know, in the 70s as well, um, difficult time, I think, in all, in, in all factors in the sense of, um, you know, the work you've got to do. And, of course, living on a boat um, was pretty idyllic for me given I had that freedom which um, if I probably lived somewhere else, I may not have had that opportunity. Mm. Now, I know you're a very, very proud Indigenous man. What's, what age did you start learning and also embracing that side of, side of your culture? Um, I'm very fortunate because my, my dad sort of always made sure that he, was, he sort of enshrined in me about where I'm from and my background. I mean, it wasn't something that was like, oh, let's not talk about it. It was simple, you know, you, you got the best of both worlds, you know. Um, you're Aboriginal, you're you know Australian, but also you you got Irish heritage. So yeah, for me, has been, been proud of all this aspect. It wasn't actually about splitting up, splitting hairs, and saying 
are you part Aboriginal, are you part Aussie, are you part Irish? I said, well, I'm proud of all of it. Mm. But I'm also Australian. So to me, it was about I live in this country. So it was about saying, well, hang on, guys, you can you can pigeonhole me, but the, the reality is I'm a proud Australian. And in, in that being a proud Australian, um, I had this. I had that nationality. I had that mix, which I think, you know, I'm proud of that because it's that diversity, which I think we see in Australia, which is it's got a strong history to it. Uh, but it's also a history that needs to be told, uh, as you're fully aware. And I think uh, we're, we're coming in leaps and bounds in that. And for me personally, it was about understanding where I was from, you know, where my heart and soul is. And, you know, I'm a Kanju man. Originally, my family is from Lockhart River, which yep. is in North Queensland. And, of course, uh, unfortunately, my family were removed um, in that period of time from Lockhart River to the Yarrabah Mission um, so to me, look, that that's history and it, it needs to be told, but it's also is what made me who I am. I mean, and, and, and opportunities that has come from that. Um, I'm always been a very positive person. It's always about, you know, I don't look at the pettiness. I look at how truly we can move forward. And, and for me, it was about, you know, what you put in life is what you get out. For sure. What was your mob called from up there? Uh, kanji mob. Kanji mob. Okay, fantastic. Mm. Now, living, you know, we spoke about it briefly, living with your dad on the, the fishing trawler, do you mm. have a deeper connection kind of with the environment and the water at all? Yeah, I think because since the uh, age of two, I think uh, living on the boat, uh, you know, smelling salt air, I mean, probably I was born with salt air coming through my lungs, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, living on the boat and, 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 and having that appreciation, I think um, really instilled me in understanding a real connection to nature and how what you do in everyday life uh, affects your surroundings and affects the way you think, affects your energy. Um, so I learned at an early age where, you know, we only fish what I needed to eat and cook up. So basically it wasn't about going get 10 fish. Yep. Uh, it was basically getting two fish if I'm lucky to get it um, and cook it up for my old man uh, on, a, on a stove or not on a stove actually, just on a just on um, some sticks and some roll, um, you know, leaves and stuff like that. But um, to me, I thought it was just a normal way of life where you appreciate your surroundings and you pay respect to everything in that surrounding because you've got to live off that surrounding. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's where Polly, I've got that deeper connection with nature because I've, you know, 17 years on a boat. Um, you know, to me, it was just the the reality that I lived that I didn't didn't know anything different. So what would your kind of normal day with? Because you still went to uh, to actual school, right, during the day, and then you'd come back to the boat. Is that what happened? Yeah, and I think, you know, of course, when I got a little bit older, um, my old man gave me that little bit of independence of rowing the dinghy or um, having the outboard on the motor uh, on the back and, and, and actually, you know, speeding to um, your school, so to speak. And I went to about 24 different schools along the coast because, as I mentioned before, where that day and age my dad sort of had – different jobs so you know he would might rock up to a place and be a, a, a mechanic um, yeah. for a couple of months or a year or he, he didn't like the place and that was tough for me because I had to learn to adapt very quickly that I might be in a school for one day one week one month or a couple of years um so, so did, did these schools think you're a rat bag going from school to school I think they just uh, probably they didn't really take an, an understanding because they didn't really get a chance to probably know who I was because I was yeah. in and out sometimes where, you know, some places I stayed longer, like places like Cooktown, 
um, a couple of years up there. We lived up there for a little while and went to school there. So I had some regular schooling in the sense where there were some places we stayed longer, like Magnetic Island was another place that I stayed. Um, but to me, it was about, you know, getting the education, which was key, and my old man was very strong on that. Mm. Uh, but, of course, sometimes I did miss um, sort of different curriculums and going to different schools because, you know, you've got to make new friends, you've got to adapt to new teachers, you've got to adapt to a lot of different environments. Um, the only thing constant for me was living on the boat um, and that normal life, so to speak. Yeah, do you consider yourself a bit of a traveller? Like, is that something you're just always curious and just from kind of moving all the time? Yeah, I think it's just ingrained in, in, in my life because I'm always used to moving on. And, and, you know, for me personally, that was sort of like, it wasn't a shock. It wasn't never a, oh, I got, we got to move again. I mean, it's like, okay, new adventure. What am I going to find? What am I going to check out? I've got to adapt. I've got to learn. You know, I've got to be able to think on my feet. And I think I had to grow up fairly quickly uh, because of the responsibilities of uh, living on a boat and, and, and being with one other person. So I had to sometimes be responsible for, you know, steering the dinghy towards an island um, or, you know, things like that, which, you know, probably not any normal kid will be able to get the opportunity because it's too dangerous. But um, because we had that independence and, you know, of course, the island might be an hour away on the boat. Yeah. Um, I just had to, you know, make sure the boat was steered towards that. Yeah, you know, and then my old man might um, have a little sleep, you know, when so it was, I mean, that, that reality where I had to learn fairly quickly that the life and death situations where, you know, if an anchor got caught in, in the reef, which we always dropped, dropped anchor near some islands, um, somebody had to dive down and get it out. And, of course, up in the Whitsundays there, and, you know, you've seen recently in the news about shark attacks. I mean, yeah. we, we live with that in the fact that, we knew there were sharks, there were tiger sharks everywhere, and we, we gave that respect to the sharks because this is their environment. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, if my old man's got to go down and get the anchor out of the coral reef, um, someone's got to watch out for a tiger shark coming through. So, uh, to me, it was that, that reality that I had to learn fairly quickly. And, and let's be honest, um, I lost about probably three or four dinghies um, wow. because that was my responsibility. And, you know, credit to my old man who – you know, let's be honest, losing a dinghy in, um, you know, far north Queensland where there's no one else around, um, you know, is, is fairly dangerous because oh, yeah. you, know, you go to the island, but then the boat has to be anchored in deep water outside the, the, the reef. And, of course, unfortunately, the best way of getting to the boat if you've lost the dinghy is to swim out over the reef to deep water to get to the boat. So, uh, you know, I had to learn fairly quickly about that and the responsibilities that I had um on my my own life but also my dad's life yeah your bond with the old man must be amazing though yeah no look we had fun well of course you know i mean let's be honest you know we we were on the boat for 17 years so there's a little bit of scary place <laughs> a little there. bit of tension <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably that's why i was able to run a little bit get out get out get out on the beach and get off you know <laughs> run off you know somewhere but um no he, he's he was a great man who you know was able to adapt um to the situation where we had hardship from my mother passing away, but it's also allowed me to always keep connected and and see my family back in, in Lockhart in Yarraba when we when we travelled through that area. So there was always that great connection and and knowing who I was. Does he have a thick Irish accent? No, he, he fairly much lost it um, when he came across. It was something I think um, 
that he wanted to really ensure that um, he was Australian. So even though he's proud of his Irish heritage, um, he felt that he was living in Australia and he had to be Australian, so to speak. So to me, you know, he might put it on when he's had a couple of beers or had a couple of wines. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of it was just, you know, for him, um, you know, it's, it's, he taught me that, you know, you you got to be respectful for where you are. And, 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 and if you're living, for me, it was, you know, living in country towns or on the boat or where else, you respect everything around you. Yeah. Now, Pat, I heard a story about him getting you to race adults in Cooktown. Is that true? Yeah, it was true, which, you know, again, I didn't think there was anything um, uh, uh, wrong with it. But, um, you know, in Cooktown, there's a you know small, sleepy town before the bitumen came through. It's all dirt road. Um, you had the top pub, middle pub, bottom pub. So um, we sometimes would have been at the top pub. So my old man would get, you know, some people that look fit and strong. And, of course, my dad would, you know, want to have a beer. So he said, well, guys, you know, we're going to race this kid down to the middle pub and back. <laughs> Uh, for a beer and an orange juice, you know, he said, "Look, you know, what do you got to lose? You know, you get a free be- beer if you you beat this kid." You know what I mean? And of course, you know, we we raced, and you know, I think my old man always knew I was going to beat him, uh, but you know, th- there was always a chance that he would lose. You know what I mean? So that was a risky take, but it was all fun. You know, it was just yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, of course, was he a runner? No, my old man was actually a boxer. Was um, he? Boxing, so do you know, some pro you know, stuff or amateur stuff? More amateur golden gloves stuff. Um, but he, you know, in that era of the seventies, you know, it was more like you, you you sort of rumble and tumble. Sometimes you, you know, you get into a, you know that reality where you, you had to learn to uh, defend yourself, and you know, sometimes you know in different places. So I think he learned um, coming to Australia um, was about you know being in control of who you are and your own senses and, and, and looking after yourself. So the, I think boxing was part of that reality where it wasn't about looking for fights, it was making sure that you protect yourself if you get in one. Mm. Those fast twitch fibres that you've got, mate, they must come. Obviously, Aboriginal people are very, very good at sports. Have you even spoken to some of your, your mother's side? Maybe is there a connection there with anything to do with athletics? Yeah, not really. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we see Australia, there's so much talent and ability that, you know, I always and strong on what you do with that talent and ability. And um, mm. it could be whatever nationality you are. I mean, of course, there is that sense where we have a lot of high you know, Indigenous athletes out there that have the, so much talent and ability, but it's like, what do they do with that? And I think yeah, for that's, sure. that's the melting pot in Australia, particularly because we see in a small country like Australia, we've got so many talented people, you know, and it's just great to see. But it's, again, how do we nurture that? How do we support that and ensure that they come out um, to do the performances they work so hard for. Definitely. Now, Pat, tell me how you got a scholarship at the International Boarding School in Mossvale, which I'm assuming is in Sydney. Yeah, well, it's just out Barrel, actually. It's just outside uh, Oh, it's at Barrel. Okay. Yeah, cool. it's at Barrel. So um, I sort of came down from, uh, of course, um, Cairns uh, and then went down to Canberra. So I didn't, didn't understand that whole move from... Uh, Cairns to Canberra because Cairns is nice and beautiful in a sense. And then Canberra was freezing cold because he went in the, the winter. So <laughs> I thought, this is madness. You know, what are we Did doing? Did you even here? have a jacket, mate? Oh, no. We, well, we had to get some. I didn't even know what a jacket was, really. But um, <laughs> we learned pretty quick, uh, you know. And look, I, I loved Canberra and for what it is. And, you know, opportunities presented itself in Canberra. And, and I think we, we went down to Canberra purely to get 
um, to further my education. Um, and the opportunities were down in Canberra at the time. Not saying there wasn't opportunities in Cairns, but um, my old man felt, well, a bit of a change different. You've had the, you probably thought that you had the idyllic life, living on a boat, fishing and travelling around the Sundays. Now you get down and, and do some hard work and get a decent job. And um, Canberra was the place we went. And, you know, luckily for me, um, when we looked at different schools, um, we were able to um, visit um, a rural college at the time. and. I wasn't. I didn't even know where Mossvale and Barrow was, you know, I mean, so to speak. Um, but I went into the school and did a little test, and uh, my maths was a little bit uh, not as probably up to par. But uh, my English and my uh, communication skills uh, were at a good level, so I was fortunate enough to get a full-time scholarship to study the HSC at Royal College. Yep. Uh, but little did I know that there was no Australians there. So my first day rocking up to a Royal College, I walked into the dining room and it was all international students. Wow. And it was a big shock. I went, uh, am I in the right place? It was like, you know, that that sliding door, you walk through a revolving door or something, you go, okay, I think I'm just in the wrong place. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Excuse me, guys. I've just got to go around the back here. Um, (laughs) Another door. But at the end of the day, you know, that's what it is. And I thought, well, look, how am I going to survive this? I need to get an education. I need to do my HSC if I want to get into university or get a job. Yep. So I thought, look, I've got to adapt, you know, and in my whole life I've, I've been able to adapt. So I said, look, to myself, look, you can, you can, you can sit in the corner and, 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 and feel sorry for yourself and hate what, what you're going to do and you hate the schooling. I said, well, at the end of the day, who's, who's going to benefit from that? No one. Mm, exactly. So I said, what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you know, you know, teach them English, um, and they teach me their language. So they are, some of the guys were able to teach me a little bit of the Cantonese. Beautiful. I was able to pick it up by ear. Um, so that's where, hence why I was able to get into university and ANU and do Asian studies and politics because I, 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 I love the, 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 the different languages. And I think, and I've got to be honest, um, I think that love came from, and you might think it's funny, but, there's a show in the ABC a long time ago called Monkey Magic. Monkey Magic. Oh, my God. I used to love that show, man. So running home from school, you know, Pigsy, you know, Tripitaka and Monkey Magic. And I think, I don't know, maybe it instilled with me a little bit of the different of culture. I mean, not only my, you know, heritage of, you know, strong culture of Aboriginal, Aboriginal in, in Australia from Lockhart River, but it's also different looking at different cultures that I wasn't aware of, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, those shows like Monkey Magic, you know, it's fun, but, you know, it was, you know, a Chinese show um, about, you know, a special, you know, monkey who had powers, you know what I mean, and Buddha and all this sort of stuff where we probably wouldn't have learnt that in any other area, but, um, you know, you've got to thank the ABC for putting on uh, a bit of monkey magic. Uh, but there's, you know, there's different school. stories as well in that too because monkey used to get his ass handed to him every single time and he used to find a way to win. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there was little little messages like that that was in that show that was just brilliant. Yeah, and very powerful. And I think, you know, that's where I, I think instilled in me has been, well, don't judge a book by its cover and don't exactly. suddenly just go, oh, well, they're Chinese, they're Asian or they're Aboriginal or they're Australian or whatever. Don't just quickly jump to a conclusion about you think you should know who they are. Yeah. My, my thing was get to know who they are. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, you know, 
and uh, I, I don't want to swear, but you're going to find people who are going to be difficult or, let's be honest, they're going to be assholes. Yeah, for sure. That's in every culture. That's in everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me it was about, you know, you make that choice, not somebody else chooses you on how you should divine somebody else. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Can you still speak a little bit of Cantonese? Oh, a little bit. Uh, you know, like Yat Yi Sam or Lei Jong Mat Ye, so what are you doing? Mo Ye Jol, so it means I'm not doing much. So it comes back sometimes. And I think the funny thing, when I was actually boarding college, I actually started dreaming Cantonese because wow. I, was, I was learning it by ear. So one of the teachers, the English teacher, says, well, Patrick, you're actually making grammatical errors the same as your colleagues. So, which is funny because you, you immerse yourself in the culture and the dialect and I started making the dramatical errors that they made within the English language themselves. So <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was a positive thing because it meant that I was actually um, being in tune in, in, in learning and that's probably why I was able to learn by ear um, and be able to speak the, the language as well. Yeah, nice. So you mentioned before that you know you, you did study your degree in human studies and also human rights. Did you do that as a part time? When because I saw that you were also working as a diplomat for the Department of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, well, I, initially I, when I went into uni, I sort of was doing politics and human rights, and I did Japanese and philosophy. So I pretty much overloaded myself pretty crazily. Yeah, you. Uh, uh, but first year, for look, one, I just challenged myself. You know, like get myself out of the comfort box. Um, but and you know the probably the first year was a well the hard reality. But I was fortunate because the Department of Foreign Affairs sort of offered me a traineeship um, while I was doing my degree. Okay. So that was a, a great opportunity because they saw that I had a flair for languages. I was fairly um, you know confident in what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve. So they said, look, Canberra, which was a small place, they said, look, I think you'll be, you'll be a great asset to foreign affairs and trade. And of course, I, I didn't. I've never heard of you know foreign affairs and trade in that sense. Um, of course, coming from the boat, I never had a passport. I never dreamed of going overseas. Uh, but of course, it opened my eyes to you know different realities. And you know, I worked for foreign affairs. I think nearly nearly ten years. So I really um, a credit to them because they were a government department, and I think they were able to support me and grow my journey. In an understanding of the, you know, the cultural understanding within Australia, how diverse we are with trade, how we are with the, the you know, all the issues that come living in a country and, and, and living in, in this universe, so to speak, in the world where we've got so many different nationalities, different religions, different issues. Uh, I think and that allowed me to really grow really well in foreign affairs and hence, you know, they'll, they'll let me go back to university. Um, while I was actually working. So hence why there's that part-time component of foreign affairs because they saw that the importance of finish off your degree um, and finish off that. But, um, no, for me, you know, it was a, a stepping stone for a lot of things. But um, you know, I think that's was- a great way to do it, though, because to do your degree while getting some practical experience, like if I could go back, that's what something I did because I did my my university full-time. And mm. when I came out of university, I had all this knowledge, but I had no experience. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things that that's what I tell people that come to me asking me for my advice. It's just like if you can you can find a balance between the two. I think that makes you stronger than just doing one or the other. Yeah, well, it's that growing up to that maturity, which I think you can only you can you can't sort of quickly ask somebody to grow up and be mature 
um, if they've never yeah, traveled, absolutely. never really uh, done a job, never done, you know, any work, so to speak. And it's no fault of their own, but it's an opportunity where they grow as an individual um, to find out what they want. Because along the way, you know, you've had that support from your parents, um, people around you, guiding you f through education, through the rights and wrongs, through, you know, the character of who you are. Mm -hmm. But you have to find who you are within this society and educate yourself as well, not waiting for somebody to educate you. Yeah. Definitely. So 1996, the Uni Games, obviously it's uh, one of the biggest, like not turning points, but biggest moments kind of to lead into your future. How old were you when you were at the Uni Games? Were you kind of at the end of Uni? Oh, uh, yeah, I was at 24. So I, I was sort of 24 University Games. I, I used to play a lot of touch footy. Gotcha. One, one thing I loved about uni was i was able to there's always a couple of uh, touch competitions like the public service touch comp the uni comp um and i used to play a little bit with um the raiders so some of the ex-raiders used to um get together like tim machines and mel meninga so i played a bit of touch so you played with mel meninga yeah and all those guys at that time yeah, way that. back in the days yeah so we all played a bit of touch which was good fun uh, but of course you know touch football was just fun in the uni period of time when I was off lectures. Uh, but university games, they said, look, a couple of friends of mine said, look, why don't you go and do the university games? I said, what's that? They said, no, it's a big sporting event that we have at university. Everyone gets together. And I said, why don't you do running? Well, you know, pretty quick on the touch field. And I said, oh, okay. I really don't know what I've run at school, maybe one or once or twice. Yep. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is university games, professional athletes. Um, so I actually went and asked two gentlemen who were the so-called track experts at ANU, uh, Rupert Sakura and Garth Livermore. And the, these guys were the so track track experts in okay. ANU. And I sort of rocked up and said, hey, guys, I heard you, the guys I've got to talk to, I want to do the university games. And, of course, their first question is, well, what are you good at, mate? You know, and have a, have a think about <laughs> Somebody coming up to you and going, okay, I think I, I want to do this. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, mate. You might be a bit of a weirdo. But um, they said, look, you want to try out with us? Okay, let's go. You know, And they, and they were a, a long jumper and a, a 400-meter runner, so yeah. long distance. So, of course, they didn't do long jump because they, they said it was too technical. But they said, oh, why don't you do the 400 meters? And, of course, you know, I ran around. Of course, I'd never run 400 meters before, three, 300 meters. And, of course, I went, oh, my God, this is killing me, you know this is too much, you know, and they're like, mm, you're not that good, mate, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I went, yeah, well, because I was, I, was, I was puffing, then, you know, these, these guys train, and I went, geez, is this running, is it? I thought, oh, this, this is probably not for me. And I said, well, let's try to do something shorter. Let's do let's do 100 metres, you know what I mean, on the, on the grass track. And I said, oh, why don't you just, we'll run down and, you know, see if you can, you know, go with us or, you know, catch us, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And of course, they took off. I took off, and then of course, um, I sort of just was just jogging, and I was beating them. And they're like, "Oh, Jesus, um, you've got some speed, mate." And I said, "Yeah, well, you know, I, I play a little bit of touch." And I said, "Oh, let's do the university games." Um, so I basically had three weeks training, or maybe two weeks training, if you call it training. I rocked up, and they just said, "Look, you know, just when the gun goes, you go." Try to keep your knees up, all that sort of stuff. Which yeah. Um, so did you even know how to start or anything? No, nothing like that. So um, one of the guys, Garth Livermore, gave me his bikes, which he basically he's a size ten, 
and I was a size <laughs> seven. And I went, what the hell is this sport? And, of course, you know, rock up to the blocks and they're all professional athletes and all looking awesome, you know, all got the kit, you know, the Nike, Adidas, yeah. whatever, you know. And I Did rocked you wear up the tights? No, well, I actually had Bond's shirt, you know, the old good old Bond's the white shirt. Life beater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I basically had, um, you know, just some old black tracksuit pants I might have um, tights, which a bit ripped, and I went, okay. And, of course, rock <laughs> up to the box, looking around. I'm looking at my mates and going, what am I doing here? And they go, no, it's okay, just just go down. So I, had, I looked at everyone else, so I tried to copy what everyone else is doing, uh, what they did with the blocks, because I haven't got a clue what blocks I was. And the funny thing is, is all these guys were, you know, shouting out and slapping themselves. And I went, oh, this is weird. This, this, this sport is a bit crazy. What have I got myself into? Because, you know, they're trying to pump themselves up, and, you know, shouting out, oh, God, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is my day. You know, it's like, oh, mate, you're right. But I think I, I think one guy said, you're okay, mate? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you, you, you look like you're stressing, you know? And he's like, mate. Don't talk to me, you know, and I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> one weird sport. Uh, of course, the gun went, um, got down the blocks, just copied everyone else. Gun went, they took off. I was still in the blocks, but I think for me, you know, my, my, start, my start was horrible. Was, you know, don't even, I, I would love to get one day some footage of that, but, um, but my top speed in my relaxed running at the end was very smooth and relaxed. So hence why I was able to probably catch a lot of these guys because they burn all their energy in the start, but I was able to overcome a lot of their guys uh, at the end. So I think to my surprise and to everyone else's, I, I basically ran, I think, 10.47 or 10.45. Without a start. Jeez. Without a start. So it was more my top speed and relaxed running. Well, you um, saw that you went so well because your style generally is that. You start a little bit slower and then you come over the top of everyone. Was that something yeah. you always did intentionally? Yeah, no, it was just something that built. You know, I mean, you, you look at the greats like Carl Lewis, um, you know, he didn't quickly get out. Even Usain Bolt, he doesn't get out super yeah, quick. He yeah, He gets out the way that suits him. And I think this is where there's that in the sprinting world, it's like you've got to get the awesome start to set yourself up, which is fair enough, mm. but you've got to have the right angles for you. So you can burn all your energy in the first 60 metres, but you've got to remember there's another 40 metres you've got to run. Um, so hence why I was able to probably my first 40 meters in the in the start was pretty bad, but my last 60 meters was very smooth and relaxed. And I think hence why you see the best uh, guys and girls make it look so easy when they run fast. Um, okay. so that was a level that I wanted to achieve, but um, yeah, to my surprise, I won it. And um, I had this uh, strange man come and speak to me. Um, was that Isa? Yeah, Essa, Paul, Paul Essa, so Essa came down and he goes, and, you know, he had that crazy look in his eye and he was a little bit shaky and he's like, oh, you you, you could be an international runner. And I mate, said, he, struck, he struck gold, that's why. But I looked at him and went, uh, yeah, mate, uh, just step back. <laughs> I don't know who you are from a bar of soap. Uh, um, yeah, just just relax, mate. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, you could be an international runner. I said, yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, I, you know, just thought, look, some guy that loves running. I just won the race. You know, I said, yeah, good, mate. Thanks very much. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, see you later, mate. Uh, I'm just going to catch up with my mates and uh, and chill out. And, um, 
And of course, from that uh, winning that race, um, because I I knew Tim Sheens and Mel Meninga at the time, uh, Mel was going. Uh, Tim was going up to the Cowboys. Yep. And of course, Mel was going to take over the Raiders. The Raiders, so, yeah. So, so of course, Tim sort of said, "No, no, you're coming up to Cowboys first. And then Mel said, "Well, come down to um, Raiders if you don't like um, the Cowboys." Cowboys, so to speak. And um, of course, yeah. I thought I. Was it hard to say no to Mal? Because obviously Mal, being you know one of the most respected Aboriginal men of all time, fantastic rugby league player, and the chance you have to stay in Canberra, that must have been really tempting. Yeah, it was, but I thought, well, you know, no harm. You know, I felt at the time, well, I can still go for Raiders if I want. Yeah. Um, but I'm, why don't I have a look at Cowboys, see what it's all about, you know what I mean? So to me it was a win-win situation because Super League at the time was just coming in. Um, and I had a trial game, and of course, you know, I thought, well, an opportunity. I just won the university games. I couldn't really celebrate with my mates because I was up actually the night, the morning after I've just run the winning the university games. I was flying straight to Townsville. Okay. So, and of course, um, the night before my trial game, um, I got a call from the Australian Institute of Sport, and that was um, Essa Patol at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, we've just offered you, we're going to offer you a full-time scholarship at the Australian Institute of Sport. What do you get in a scholarship? Uh, everything, you, you live on campus, or you can, you can choose to live on campus or not, yep. or you get all the physio, you get the, the facilities and all that sort of stuff. So you just, get your own room, your food, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. So the IRS at the time was, if you're on full scholarship, you're entitled to um, the support, you know what I mean? Okay. So, for me at the and, time, yeah, sorry. And do you get like, do you get additional money or do you have to get another job to support, you know, social life and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, you've got to get another job. Um, they do only support if you're travelling on teams and stuff like that. So um, they do pay um, your support, you know, flights and stuff. But usually that's through government funding when you get selected on teams. Um, but anything that's... Well, it's more in-house where the Institute of Sport, uh, full-time scholarship means you get all the physio, you okay. get all the doctors, you get all the uh, science and, and biomechanics, you get um, psych, you get everything you, you need to be the best athlete if you're good. You know I mean? Yeah, so when you turn up to the AIS, who else is already there? Well, I've got to be honest, I didn't know anyone. Um, and I think I was an enigma in the sense where who the hell is this guy? Yeah, we just heard he just got one scholarship after one race. Um, so I think there was that little bit of like, who the hell is he, and how can he get a scholarship for one race? Because <laughs> uh, it never came through juniors. He's he hasn't shown his ability. He's only one of one race. Um, but so no one knew anything about you at all. You had no no, and, and I didn't know anyone else. I didn't know anyone else because um, it was just the reality. I mean. The only, only probably sprinters I knew at the time was Carl Lewis and, and Ben Johnson and a couple of other guys at the time internationally. Yeah. And, of course, you, you knew some of the, you know, the main Australian athletes. But sprinting to me was – I've never really watched sprinting. Um, the only time I watched sprinting was at the Olympics. You know, if the Olympics is one, everyone watched the, watches the 100 metres, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Male and female because everyone wants to know who's the fastest man or woman on the planet. Um, so I would only watch that, and, and then other than that, I wouldn't be watching um, any sort of um, athletics, so to speak. So it was an eye-opener because I did the trial game in Cowboys. And of oh, course yes, you I played. 
I played, but um, I said to Tim, I said, look, I've just got an offer at the Australian Institute of Sport. Yep. Uh, um, and I'll be heading down there to to test it out because I thought, look, if I get quicker, let's be honest, if I get quicker, I'll still be able to play footy, wouldn't I? So to me, it was a simple win-win situation. Go to the OS, get quicker. If I didn't like it, then play footy. Hmm. When you did get quicker, did you get more offers? Yeah, I got a couple of offers back, but I, I think because I I started getting you know a real passion and, and enjoy for it because I think even at a young age I did love running and having that sort of sense of freedom and and you know you might laugh at sort of that wind through the hair so to speak um, it's just you know being free and, and and being able to feel that you've got speed so to me that that sort of passion and that desire to get quicker and quicker. Um, was really in the foremost in my mind when I sort of kept training at the RS and continue on, regardless of getting offers to you know, go back to footy and stuff like that. Yeah, is it powerful in your own mind, though? Because not everyone can, or pretty much no one, can run as fast as you guys can. Does it, it's not, not that I'm saying you guys got an ego or anything, but inside, like, does it make you feel powerful? Oh, I think it allows me to be comfortable and be confident of what I was able to do and achieve. I think, yeah. me, I've never had an ego. It's all like all about performances. Don't talk about it, just do it. Mm. Don't tell me how you're going to do it and how you're going to be the best. Just show me. Um, yeah, exactly. So for me, it was about your results. And when you've done it, you don't have to say anything because you've done it. So, you know, that's where I sort of grew up and I think my upbringing said, well, you don't need to tell somebody you're the best because you've already proven it with your results. Mm. So I think that's where I was a different sort of kettle of fish in the sense in the elite spring world that um, I wasn't arrogant. You know, I, I sort of grew up with that respect and appreciation. But, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I was quietly, you know, confident in my ability, but I still had to prove a point to myself, not to anyone else. Yeah, uh, because coming in the sport, you know, I did have a lot of knockers. I had a lot of people who said, "Look, you're too old, mate. You'll never make it." And these people didn't know me from bar of soap. But I think it was that jealousy initially because I came in the sport so late. People were jealous that how can you just come in so late and and perform? You know what I mean? And of course, I had injuries. You know, I had everything under the sun. But to me, it was about don't judge me. I'm just my face value, you know, get to know me who I am. If you don't, then that's your business. That's your yeah. that's true. But don't try to tell me what my ability and what my talent is because I don't even know what it is. Great lesson so, for everyone, though, in terms of it's never too late to start. No, and I think, you know, I was able to, 24 years old, start the, a life of track and field and, and especially, you know, 100-metre sprinting. It was very elite, and I didn't really understand this whole elite stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you think it was I an just advantage, did. though, but not having – because, you know, some of these kids, like all these kids, like even Shovo, all the boys that came through, they were racing since they were, you know, little kids. So the mileage they would have had on their bodies by the time they were in their 20s would have been pretty significant. Yeah, and, and then that's a hard reality because you've got to weigh up where you've got to have the experience, you've got to have the training underneath your belt. And we're fully aware that, you know, places like America, that they have the college system, um, a lot of those athletes train a lot more than we do in Australia because we don't have those 
scholarships for track and field, so to speak, in, in our college systems here. Yeah, in the unis, yeah. Yeah. So to me was, well, yes, you might have the, the mileage and a lot of people need the mileage to make the gains. You know, like anything in, in, in life, you've got to build stuff, you know, put something in the bank to you know, eventually get it out later. So to me, it was about what I did with the opportunity of training, understanding it, um, and also being patient and getting the mileage underneath my belt, so to speak. So people like Matt Shervington, you know, all the other guys, they, they started when they're young, which is a credit to them because they'll still be able to perform really well and be some of the best you know, runners in this country. Yeah. Uh, to me, it was a lot of it's just mindset and, you know, how they dealt with the pressures. And we all dealt with pressures different ways. Um, and, and it's one of those hard realities because you've got to learn and that trial and error where you can have your coaches, you can have your family, can everyone giving you the right advice and right support. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. You're the only one who's going to run down the track and perform and live and die by the track, so to speak, in your performances, which is sometimes a hard reality where we expect the utmost from our athletes, mm-hmm. um, but we don't understand anything behind that. They don't understand the journey of what an elite athlete does sometimes, six hours a day. You know, they might have breakups, they have emotional issues, financial issues. We, we only see the athlete on the blocks or in a competition or in the game and we just see their performance, but we don't know much more behind that. What yeah, that's, that's, what, that's a different reality because I think that's one thing we should probably, and I personally think we should have a little bit of more understanding of what's happening behind closed doors, so to speak, and outside their own training because I feel you need to have a lot of emotional intelligence, and I think if you don't have that, uh, your talent's only going to get you so far. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the, the big names you did mention there, Carl Lewis, did you ever race against him? Yeah, I did race against him in 97, so he was his uh, last, first and last race in Australia, so he's doing his farewell tour. Um, so he went to Sydney um, and he came and, 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 and raced, and, of course, I raced him. I think I, was, I don't even know if it was my first month of training, I mean. Wow. I raced Carl Lewis and then also Linford Christie was coming in as well. So, Was it a surreal know. day just to – these two are absolute legends of the sport. Could you believe that you had come this far? Not really because it was such a short time to yeah. race best and, you know. And well, what did you say I, to him? Hello, Mr. Lewis. Yeah, I just, I just said hello, Carl. You know, but at the end of the day, the sprinters at the time were – it was sort of like fairly serious and – some somebody said to me, "Oh, it's Lewis versus Johnson," and I went, and I went, "Who's Johnson?" And they were talking <laughs> to me, and I went, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, "You, you got to be kidding! Don't, don't even try to put me in the same area." You know what I mean? Because I just had a month, maybe a couple of months of training, but I think it was always about that rivalry, which I think we all love in Australia, but also in sport, we love to see rivalry because we know that we'll see the best out of each other, you know what I mean? So I think it was that little bit of, um, you know, you know, bit of banter with the, the wording. It's like Johnson versus Lewis, you know. It's like, uh, don't think so, mate. I think, you know, Johnson will have to wait for another six or seven years to, to be even mentioned, you know what I mean, so to speak. So to me it was making understanding to be confident in my ability where I was learning but also be respectful for, you know, the athletes that are, were there 
and who were there at the best of the time. We had people like Steve Brimacombe. We had Damien Marsh and uh, Dean Capbianco. So these were yeah. the start time in Australia's sprinting. And I, um, Shane Naylor was another guy. So these guys we get, I gave a lot of respect to because I didn't know anything about track and field. And, you know, these guys, they may not have spoken to me initially when I first came in the sport because they were all focused on what they did. Yeah. Uh, but I think I remember one time, I think, I think it was Shane Naylor said to me, he said, well, welcome to the sport. And, you know, and that was a nice thing that he, he said to me because you look back at that and think, oh, no one knew me from Bar of Soap. People didn't know what I was capable of doing. I didn't even know what I was capable of doing. Um, but it was also a bit of nice to people to welcome me in the sport, which I didn't know anything about, which is, is a nice way of coming into the sport as well. For sure. Now, it doesn't take you long to get to the Sydney Olympic Games. It's only literally three years from when you started. What was it? What was the mindset towards, and was there a huge amount of pressure being a home Olympics? It was for me. I mean, I probably expected the world, and given I only had a couple of years of training, and I was in probably 10-1 shape, 10-2 shape, so I was in reasonable shape coming in. Um, yeah. But the expectation was so high where, you know, you had the Morris Greens, you had the Addo Boldens, uh, you had your John Drummonds, and these guys were, were the class acts. So they were coming through and they were looking at winning. And, of course, you know, I felt to myself, oh, I could, I, could, I could beat these guys. You know, you had Frankie Fredericks, you all these mm. superstars in the sport. And I thought, and, of course, your, your mind might go, home Olympics, I, I, I will be there. And, I, of course, for me, because I didn't have a lot of experience at that high level, um, I had to learn the hard way um, about what it meant to walk in a stadium of 100,000 people and and people shouting my name. I, I remember a time where I walked into the stadium and there was this lady shouting out my name and saying, I love you. And, wow. And I went, oh, this is weird. And I went, okay. But, of course, because I've never been in that situation, I didn't know really at the time how to deal with that. Of course. Yeah, okay. You know, I, I, you know easy for me to go and say, oh, thank you very much for your support and um, I'll hopefully you know, run well. But it distracts away. You've got to enjoy the moment, but also then you've got to focus on what your job is. Um, and, of course, I did the best I can. I got through the second rounds, but um, I expected more. And there's probably that pressure. And I think even at the Olympic Games, we say Sydney, uh, I think round one, um, of course, when the camera came on me, um, there was a big roar, but I didn't really hear the roar. I was waiting for my name. Yeah. So what one of my triggers was, okay, if I hear my name, then focus. I mean, but, of course, Sydney Olympics, they saw Australian green and gold, and everyone roared. But yeah. I couldn't hear my name, and I initially thought they didn't mention my name. So initially uh. I went, they forgot to mention me, and I thought, you know, damn it, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. that first round I raced with a little bit of anger um, because I actually thought they didn't mention my name. So, But you, in hindsight, you know, looking back, you thought, well, of course you didn't hear your name because there's 100,000 Australians roaring at you, mate. So, But I, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't even know what that meant, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I did the 100, did the 200 and did the relay. So I was... Let's be honest, I'm fairly full on and, and running in the Olympic Games. And I think for me, looking back hindsight, you know, I should have enjoyed it a little bit more. But 
I didn't know any difference. I, I went there to be the best, and the pressure that I put on myself, of course, didn't allow me to do as much as I wanted to and perform where I wanted to do. Of course, I wanted to be in the Olympic final, one of the race against the Morris Greens and Addo Boldens and the, and be there, you know, and of course, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that, but of course, that, the, the reality just, was there. Yeah, Peter, those two boys you just mentioned and Drummond as well. Yeah. Tell me about, is there a psychology that goes on between the boys before you hit the blocks? Because Maurice Green's got his tongue out wagon. He's kind of like, he's got his bit of jive happening. Like, what's the psychology that happens between all the runners? Well, the reality is, uh, you know, and, and not not in a bad way, each, each athlete prepares in their own way, but there's probably a lot of shouting, there's a lot of, you know, talk, and, 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 of course, this is how they psych you out, so to speak. So, hence, where if you if somebody's shouting and you notice that person, you're He's distracted got, yeah. from yeah, your own yeah, yeah. reality. So, this is where, and I, I would say this in, in, you know, they had the HSI group at the time, and before that you had you had the training partners of Morris Green and Addo Bolden and John Drummond, and these guys are you know, always getting in the finals, getting in the top three medals and stuff like that. So. You could get, you know, these are the superstars, but the way they conducted themselves, you know, it's easy not to get distracted by, you know, some guy shouting out, going, yes, it's my time, my time. Yeah. You know, and you go, oh, Jesus. And if you get distracted, they, they beat you because you've actually forgot about your preparation and how you do it. And only the best probably over years have actually adapt to that and know they don't even hear anyone else. You know, you people like, you know, Donovan Bailey and people like that where, you know, I've raced against Donovan, you know, you know Frankie Fredericks, all these guys, and you, you, you learn from the best and see what they do and how they prepare themselves. You know, like classic example, Frederick, Frankie Fredericks, you never hear a whisper out of him. But he is one of the best athletes in the world at that time. Yeah. And he still is, you know, and what he achieved and what he done. And I think for me was I learned very quickly Observe the best if you want to be the best. Mm, for sure. Now, PJ, one of your best runs before you hit that 10-second barrier, you just lost to Tim Montgomery, and it was only there wasn't much in it. I think you clocked 10.05 by memory. That's what I've got in my notes. Was that the stage when you knew that you belonged in the sport? Yeah, I think it first came probably in Perth when I ran 988. So what happened there? It was illegal, right? It was illegal. It was three meter, I think, three meter tailwind. So you can you only allow two meter tailwind behind you. So you know, to me, you know, with all the ups and downs of any athletics, any career of an athlete, um, you've got to learn from your mistakes, and grow stronger, be better, and improve yourself. And for me to come out in two thousand three and run nine eighty eight in Perth in in Perry Lakes at the time, uh, I knew that I was I was going to do sub ten because. I had a couple of years, you know, even 2000 Olympics, 2001, and, um, of course, 2002, I had a, had an injury, a stress, a stress fracture at the time. Yep. Uh, I knew that I was verge of something, you know, and I knew that I, the work I put in was always going to produce some result. And I wasn't never looking at a time. I was never looking at a result. I was looking at every single day of six hours a day of training, how do I improve every single thing I do be better, to be stronger, to be faster. You know when Shervo hit that in 98 when he just yeah. missed out on breaking 10? From yeah. that point onwards, did you guys all just have something in the back of your mind that you wanted to break 10? 
I think I've always had that notion in the back of my head because there has always been a bit of a stigma um, about the sub-10 club, so to speak. Mm. And for me, there was always this ceiling that we we somehow couldn't break. I mean, and even from coming into the sport, there was a little bit of the sense of, well, you're not African descent, you're not Jamaican, you're not this, you're not that. Yeah, you're not going to run fast, yeah. And I went, who cares what descent, what background you are? It's about what you love to do, what you, the hard work you put in, what you believe in, and what your reality is in your coaching and your support. And to me, I didn't understand this mentality that, oh, you know, you can't break the 10-second barrier, you know what I mean? You can only be of this colour or this nationality. And I said, well, stuff that. If so, if somebody else had done it, then why the hell if we can't do it? You know, and, of course, Matt Shervington at the time, running 10.03 so close, you know, I think there was that expectation that he would do it easily, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because he was so close and he was in great shape and, you know, he, 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 was, one of, he was the benchmark in my day where – Shervo or Matt Shervington at the time, you, you knew that he was the benchmark because he, he was the fastest Australian. He ran 10.03. Uh, and to me, it was, you know, we, we had that rivalry. We had that sort of um, always at each other, so to speak, in, in a good way in the track and in, in running against each other where we had to push each other. Were you um, ever mates? Oh, look, we, we, always, we didn't have candlelight dinners together. but Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Respect- you have to separate it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're always very respectful for each other. Um, of course... Yeah. We wanted to be, everyone wanted to be number one. I wanted to beat Shervo. Shervo wanted to beat me. And I think everyone loved it. I mean, I think they loved that rivalry where here's, well, it, was, you know, it was similar to like Danny Grant and Anthony yeah. Mundine. It was, you guys needed each other. And I think yeah. it made you both better. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone saw that I wasn't have the great start. Shervo had the great start. So yeah. who's going to win? Because if Shervo gets out quick, Johnson's going to come out of the top. Or if Johnson gets out quick, can, you know, Sherva hold on. So I yeah. think in the sprinting terms in that period from probably, you know, let's say you know, 99 onwards, um, of course, he did the 2003 and 98. Uh, 99, I started running the, around about the 10 twos and 10 ones, or actually 10 ones, actually. So that's where the rivalry probably started in, a, in an intense way and, and went all the way through our career, which I think just drove us to, to be better and, and prove a point to the rest of the world that we have that talent in Australia, and we're seeing that even this day and age that, you know, we've got to have that little bit of rivalry to push each other to be better. Yeah. Was it hard not to look at when he was racing and you weren't racing? Was it hard not to look at what he was doing? Uh, Not really because I sort of – I wasn't – I couldn't run like Shervo, so I had to stick to what I knew. Um, Shervo had an explosive uh, start, uh, which I didn't have because of my years of not – doing blocks or not having the – I had the power, but it was different. I, I was more of a smooth, relaxed runner. Uh, Shervo was more of a powerful runner, so therefore I wasn't going to be a powerful runner. So I looked at the best guys in the world that I could look for, and that was people like, you know, Carl Lewis, yeah. Frankie Fricks, Donovan Bailey. So these are the guys I looked for because they were smooth and relaxed at top end speed. So there's no point in me looking at a Morris Green or somebody else because I wasn't I wasn't built like that. Yeah, PJ, what so, at what point of the hundred meters would you hit top speed? Well, we probably looked at about sixty meters, a bit 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 after sixty. Yeah, so okay. you get you get in your top speed. It all depends on your drive phase. Um, 
and where you're at. And of course, you know, some people get to their top speed by, you know, 40 or 50 sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. But people don't understand it's, it's at the end, it's, you're not running any faster. You're basically holding your speed for longer. Yeah, gotcha. So you've got to hold your top speed as long as you can. And people like Usain Bolt, we know, he can hold it longer than anyone else in the world, and that's why he's the best because he gets to his top speed. He can hold it better than anyone else in the world. Mm. Uh, and I think that's where the reality is. Everyone thinks, oh, you're, you're running faster. You're actually moving. I said, no, all I'm doing is holding my speed better. You can't go any quicker. You just hold it better. Yeah. Where did you race better in? Because I know in Mido, Japan, obviously it's a smaller stadium, and you spoke, mm. spoke before about the 100,000 at, at mm. Stadium Australia. Mm. You know, over your, over your career, did you have – did you have better times in the smaller stadiums? Not really. I think it was, it was all about because usually the bigger stadiums, of course, you had the big championships. But yeah. one thing that I learned over the years, where we we had to be very conscious of two seasons, where you got the Australian domestic season, mm-hmm. and then you also had the international season. So for me, was getting an understanding of how my body can cope with that, and I think we've had the best guys and girls able to perform with the two season. You look at Sally Pearson, a couple other guys who are able to do it and learn how to do it because for me, running all year, you know, it's easy for me to burn out. Um, so yeah, I was getting sure. how, and I'm, I was a lot older. Uh, you got to remember when I ran 993, I was 30 years old. Wow. So I was the oldest ever to, to run sub 10. Because you already started kind of winding back a little bit as many sessions as you were doing? Like, did you drop back a bit when you were 30? Well, not really. I mean, I think because I had that, I was running so fast, I mean, I sort of was so keen to even be better. So, you know, that's one of the, in the things in hindsight where I probably had to listen to my body a bit more. Yeah, exactly. Stand my body. But because I trained so much and so hard and because I wanted to be better than 993, um, I had to be patient, and that was that was probably a bit of a, a reality for me is to, you know, get a bit of understanding, have that little bit of emotional intelligence and maturity for myself that, yes, you've run fast, so let's make sure that the body and the mind and the spirit can cope with this, you know? Mm, because sometimes sure. you, you run so fast, but then how do you make sure you continue to do that? And, and there, was some, there was a, like any athlete, everyone wants a perfect race. Um, and I think I was I was looking to to get that, and to me, I, it probably has eluded me the the perfect race. Yeah, because uh, like anything, you know, you look at the classic like Michael Johnson when he's uh, two hundred meters when he broke the two hundred meters at the time, he felt he stumbled out of the blocks in Atlanta at the time when he broke the world record. Yeah, wow. But for me, as a classic example, I felt that I did not have a perfect race yet, and I was still finding that and. I love that challenge where, you know, I knew that I was ser- searching and wanted the perfect race. Um, and I probably, of course, it was, it was a, you know, something that was not, not reality for me mm. um, because, you know, you can look for the perfect race, but the only way you're going to get a perfect race is working on the finer details of what you do every day. For sure. Now, PJ, take me to Mido because I've seen all the highlights again and your semi-final was blistering. Did you, mm. from that semi-final, because I, I think you, you even kept some in the tank and you nearly cracked the 10 then. Did you just have it in the back of your mind you were going to do it? Yeah, I had that confidence where I felt, you know, I mean, I felt that I could have done it in Australia, but 
at the moment, the, the, the Australian conditions did not favour my uh, running sub-10. A classic example, I ran in Canberra 10-13 with a minus 1.6. Yeah, okay. So I really knew I was ready, but, you know, at the end of the day is because of the conditions and especially outdoors, you're always, you know, you're up to the elements. Um, but I think in Mito, you know, I had that little bit of a break um, from the domestic season and I, was, I loved going to Japan. Um, so it was sort of my Zen moment to go to Japan and yeah. I, I love that feeling in Japan because it's all about, you know, uh, detail, it's all about respect, it's all about culture, it's all about beautiful food. Like I love my, my sushi and all that sort of stuff and sashimi. So yeah, to me, nice. I was in my element. So, you know, and of course, you know, you know, one of my favourite foods is blueberries. So okay. one of the running jokes is, you know, have you had your blueberries yet? So um, <laughs> um, whatever works, I thought. But um, for me, it was, um, you know, I knew that I was ready to run fast at some stage. It was just the conditions. And Mito at the time was great conditions. And, you know, coming out and running, I think, 10 or 10.05 yeah. um, in the round, I knew that you know, it, it's there. But, of course, you've got to execute it, you know, like, you might think you're in shape, but the reality is you've got to do it. And um, I had a, I had the a Japanese record holder at the time where I think he ran ten thirteen in the heat, and you know I felt he was he was fairly cocky about it. So I think that helped me challenge my energy and say, well, hang on, no point being cocky. It's about what your results are. And he, he was a great runner, so it was about me not getting distracted by somebody else. Yeah. Hence, I've mentioned, you know, you, 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 you take in other people's energies. So I sort of very quickly got, hey, I've learned this from the Sydney Olympics, watching other people taking their energy. Let's get back to who, who I am and why I'm here. And that mindset, that reality, and you've got to be in the moment. If you're not in the moment, it passes you by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that time I was in the moment and I proved that, you know, as – Anyone in Australia can run fast. It's just that opportunity to do the hard work with your talent and, and, and actually work at it, you know. And I was able to run the, the 993, uh, which is really an honour for me to put Australia on the map and, and being the first sub-10 runner. Yep. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, non-African-American. I didn't really get all that sort of stuff, but I'm sort of proud of it. Yeah. yeah, I was proud of the fact that I could just prove a point to everyone that, look, doesn't matter your background, colour. You know, it matters what you do with your ability and talent. If you want it bad enough, um, you know, you've got to you've got to work at it. And I think that's where I was happy to prove a point that don't ever judge anyone the way they look. Yeah. Now, judge what they, who they are and their character, you know what I mean? PJ, when you hit the line, did you just know? No, I didn't actually because the funny thing is when I crossed the line, all the Japanese journalists and everyone was running to, you know, the it's national record. record. Yeah. yeah, and I went, and if you ever see the footage, you'll, you'll, I've actually asked one of the Jamaican guys, and I said, didn't I win? Because <laughs> they all ran to him because they actually felt that he must have run sub-10 as well. Yeah. Because I ran 993, so he was so close, but he ran 1003, so the same as Matt Shervington at the time. So, yeah. But everyone, all the cameras and all the Japanese press all ran over to him and I went, I remember going to the Jamaican guy at the time and went, didn't I just win? <laughs> what are they doing? You know, like I, I'm sure I just won the race. 
And of course, the guy goes, "Look into time," you know. But at the time, I went, "Did I just win? This seems a bit ridiculous. Everyone's running to second place runner." You know what I mean? But I knew it was he was a national record holder, so it was a split moment. I went, uh, "Yeah, didn't I win, mate? You know what's going on?" But um, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a proud moment for me to, you know, for Australia, but also, you know, the rest of the world to, you know, show that you know there's there's ability and talent, which has always been in Australia. Um, but to do sub ten, which is a pretty much an elite club, um, I was really honoured to be a part of it. Yeah, how much did it did it really change your life in terms of because you had broken that ten? I'm sure that media attention would have went through the roof. The expectations for you to continue to do even better would have went through the roof. How did you kind of handle going from being over ten to then being under ten, and then handling everything I just mentioned? Yeah, I think because of my up upbringing I, I took it as just a you know water off a duck's back you know because i wanted to do so much better so i was able to shield myself pretty well to basically go well look if you want to get better you got to focus on training you know all this other stuff is you know great because you 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 get acknowledged or you get it you get an understanding of what you've done but i didn't sit back on my laurels and go oh yep i've done it now guys i need to have a break chill out you know go to the beach and and do something it was like well okay great i've just shown a little bit of my ability and talent, what I've done with, you know, six years of training, you know what I mean? Mm. And we're talking about guys who've done it in 10 years and they've just broken 10 seconds, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So I went, okay, this is good. This is, this is a step in the right direction. And the fact is, you know, all the injuries I've had over the years, the disappointments, um, you know, the financial struggles I've had, it's just sort of like, well, you know, this is a nice way of saying, okay, you know, don't let anyone ever stop you from doing what you love doing and believe in yourself, and which is hard because, you know, you've you got to get everything right, your mind, your body, your spirit, because – and you've got to get the right support. You know, you can't have people that around you who are negative. Um, so I made sure that I really, you know, was able to just focus on the bare basics and that's improving everything I do every day. Now, Pat, you know, 9.93 is such an awesome achievement, but just having a look, 2010, when you're 37 years old, you're still mm. running 10.18 and you made the Commonwealth Games team. Mm. Do, you find that, do you find that more prouder, considering how old you were and how late you were to your career, that you could still be producing the goods at that age? Yeah, look, I, I, I was stoked in the fact that, you know, this old guy could still run fast and um, exactly. actually show yeah. the younger kids that, don't matter about age. Doesn't matter about anything. It matters what you love doing. And you know, for me to still run ten one eight and still win a national champion, I, I was still um, national champion in the two hundred. Um, I, I was actually proud to be able to actually say and know that what I put in life, I'll get something back from it, and I'll, I'll actually be still the best if I want to be. And it's all the mindset that I've had. So I was fortunate that. You know, I was able to do that. But, of course, I didn't I didn't get selected in running individuals and stuff like that. So I think it just sort of is disappointing for me because all the work you put in, like any elite athlete, you know, you're always going to have those ups and downs and, you know, sometimes missing major championships. Uh, and I thought, look, it's probably time to hand it over to the next generation to um, take over the mantle and, 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 and I can get back to sort of, living life and, and, and really looking at uh, ways of um, giving back to, you know, Australians and to the communities. Sure. Talk to me a little bit about giving back because you're doing a lot of work now for the Cowan Deadly Choices and obviously you found your purpose outside of sports as well. 
Yeah, for me, it was always about healthy living. So daily choices is, is about empowering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to have, live healthier life. Is, life. So it's basically quit smoking, um, eat healthy, you know, exercise more. And I'm part of the you know, Cow and Health Service, which is on the, the Gold Coast, which basically uh, provides a, a unique combination of primary health care services uh, and community-based services to the Gold Coast and to all yep. the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islands, and I do a lot of the, the school-based programs. So there's actually a eight-week tobacco program um, and a six-week, oh, sorry, six-week tobacco program and an eight-week uh, healthy lifestyle program. So we go into a lot of the schools and, and really edu- educate the kids about living healthy. Okay. And a part of that is getting the health check because there's so much stigma about seeing the doctor. Um, so what we've changed with the daily choices and has changed the stigma that you go and get a health check, you get a 715, and you actually get a daily shirt. So, uh, yeah, and, that, and a lot of times that's, that's different, different uh, NRL clubs. Uh, we have some AFL clubs as well as part of it. So, of course, my team is Cowboys, so I'm proud to wear a, <laughs> a daily choices Cowboys shirt. But um, Get you the Sharkies bandwagon, mate. Come on. <laughs> well, well, the Sharkies actually have signed up for Delhi Choices. Um, Perfect, mate. So they've, they've actually uh, come on board because they see um, the Delhi Choices is really a great initiative because getting everyone to be healthier and, and take steps to not only be healthy for themselves, but also be healthy for their families. Definitely, mate. All right, PJ, let's wrap up with a couple of personality questions at the end. Now, first one, what was your favourite race venue? My favourite race venue in Australia was probably um, Canberra and Perth. Okay. Um, what, a, what about overseas? Overseas was probably Luzerne, Switzerland. Was it just a fast track or was it just good atmosphere? It's had everything. Like, and, and one of the probably the great things over at Luzerne, there's always, um, you know, it was always seasons in season for blueberries and strawberries and rice. <laughs> I love the fact you could go to the markets with the river flowing down in Luzerne, Switzerland there, and you can just get punnets of um, strawberries and raspberries and blueberries. <laughs> so I was in heaven, and, of course, if I'm happy with that, I was able to run fast there where I think my first 10-1 was in Luzerne. There you um, go. I'm surprised run. you didn't move there, mate. Oh, I could have been there, but um, I'm too proud to be Australian, so I never wanted to leave the great shores of Australia. For sure. Now, PJ, who was the fastest person that you raced against? Well, Usain Bolt, of course, he's the, the current world record holder. Uh, of course. Um, Did you I race raced, against him? I raced him in the Helsinki um, in the 200-meter final. Nice. Of course, at the time, you had your, your Justin Gutlins, um, you know, all the Americans there. So, I mean, for me initially, of course, I've, I've run against the, the greats like Carl Lewis, you know, Linford Christie, Donovan Bailey, you know, Frankie Fredericks, of course, Morris Green. Um, and, of course, uh, Usain Bolt. So I've been really fortunate because I've run again. And, of course, Tim Montgomery at the time, unfortunately, at the time he um, got busted for drugs. But uh, at the time, he was one of the fastest runners in the world at that time. So yeah, I've yeah. run against all the best. Um, and I think I think one of my favourite uh, athletes was always Frankie Fredericks, just the way he conducted himself on and off the field um, and, and, the, and the performances he's done. And, and you know, I think... For me, I sort of looked at those top guys to be the best because they were the best. Okay, next one. Actually, this is one from my one of my friends, Oscar. He's actually a runner, and he wanted to know: Do you still train? 
Yes, I do. So at the moment, I'm only doing sort of two sessions of running a week, and the rest I do zoo training. So that's a, a new thing for me because I needed something to get my body into shape in the sense where I don't want to just hit the gym all the time. Um, okay. I, wanted to, I want to be outdoors. So I do two sessions of running, um, probably about uh, 1080 meter sprints, walk back recovery. Okay. And the rest is a, a zoo training, which is a bit of a mobility, um, sort of similar to um, animal skills where you do bear crawls and you do frogs and all these different things, which gets your body to actually get back to basics. Where, as we were probably as a baby, where you crawl a lot, um, that was something that I've sort of taken on board and uh, want to still keep health and fit. And and that's one of my key things as well. You got to practice what you preach. Yeah, for sure. Now, if you were to run again, like with your training now, do you, what, what do you reckon you'll run? Well, it's a hard one. I mean, of course, probably my my mind would say I'll probably be in ten three, ten four shape. <laughs> reality reality of probably uh um you know who knows i mean of course i'll break uh uh, 11 seconds easily but it's just how what the toll of my body of what i thought because uh, a couple of times i sprint down the 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 grass track and i felt i was flying but uh of course the body started going mate you need to train a bit more to think you can fly so yeah unfortunately i could i'd never time myself it wasn't about that it's the feeling i had and um I think for me, hopefully I'll, I'll be in still, you know, reasonably 10, 4, 10, 5 wow. shape. Um, okay. I'll let you know right. when we start up our touch team. We'll, uh, we'll sign you up, son. That's it. Just, put sure. me on the wing. Just put me on the wing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, PJ, final question. Just my dinner party question. Now, you've got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? <laughs> Well, I'll probably look at um, international. I'll look at uh, um, Barack Obama. Yep. Uh, Denzel Washington, one of my favourite uh, actors. I'm trying to think. There's a hard one, actually. I was looking at Australians where I would probably get uh, um, Sean Chopra, which is a comedian. He's one of the comedians um, in Australia here. Yep. The ladies, I was, I was looking hard at uh, which ladies would I have <laughs> uh, in the sense of um, internationally or here, I mean, of course, you've, you know, I'll, I'll probably get a singer involved. You know, it might be somebody like uh, Beyonce or somebody like that. Why not, mate? Uh, or uh, Christine Arnoux, who's from Australia here. Or, you know, I think for me, it was getting that good balance where, you know, you would hope people would get along. Um, you would probably look at uh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, for sure. Great man himself. Um, and I'll probably uh, look at... Um, did you ever meet Nelson and any of the track mates? No, I never actually, unfortunately, I never got the opportunity where um, to race in South Africa. Um, there was one opportunity I wanted to, but um, I decided not to at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, some of the, the great guys themselves. I mean, I'll probably look at somebody like Bruce Lee. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah? I think that's um, five. Bruce, Nelson. Who else did you Brock. Brock. Someone I'll else probably, Oh, yeah. Beyonce. Um, and I'll probably, uh, well, not in a bad way, not in a, uh, a silly way, but I'll probably, I'll probably try to get my mother 
um, to be at the dinner as well. So no, that's yeah. not silly at all, mate. You get to. As you said, it's, it's not the family, but uh, no family. But I'll make an exception for that one, yeah. mate, because I know how thanks, much it makes to you. Yeah, thanks, mate. Well, PJ, I really, really, really enjoyed having a chat with you today. Before I let you leave, now, and I know you're not a huge social media. I know you're on Facebook privately, but is there anything else that you'd like to promote in terms of something you've got going on with the Deadly Choices coming up, or anything else that you've you've got on online? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, um, because I'm one of the uh, Delhi Choices ambassadors, and for me, it's really important for not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to go and get a health check, but I think for all Australians to get a health check, I think it's really important for us to get on top of um, those things we can get on earlier with the chronic diseases, chronic illnesses, and of course, hopefully, um, you know, push the idea that you try to eat a bit healthier, try to exercise a bit more, and um, you know, be better for yourself and your family. So really I think it starts with, you know, everyone taking ownership uh, of their own health um, to support their family. But uh, get a health check, I think it's really important, uh, and get all the support you want over the years because I think a lot of the issues are coming out where, you know, mental health as well, I think it's a bigger issue in Australia. I think uh, for fellows particularly, I think we need to get out there and uh, really express ourselves and, and, and if you have... Uh, concerns or you have depression or have anything like that, go and get help, get support um, because, you know, you know, we're incredible beings and I think there's an opportunity where we need to make sure that we keep that up. Very well said there, mate. Well, like I said, really appreciate you joining me on the show, buddy. All the best for a great 2019 and, yeah, I'll let you know when I'm starting that touch team, mate, because I need a winger. Thanks, mate. Yeah, just put me on the right or left, doesn't matter, mate. On my <laughs> well, I've, I've passed better left to right, mate, so you'll be on the right <laughs> wing. Fair enough. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks, mate. Appreciate well, well. it. And that, guys, with Patrick Johnson. Hope you definitely enjoyed that. If you did, please share it with your family and friends. Really helps me to continue to grow the podcast. If you haven't yet, you could, if you could please spare me a couple of minutes and review the podcast. It's the easiest way is either by Apple Podcasts or iTunes or just log on to your Facebook and if you jump on Talking With TK, you can leave a review on there. All right, next week on the show, we've got St. George, Illawarra Dragons legend, Ben Cray. He's an absolute legend. Some great stories from Big Ben, but definitely go over the back catalogue. We're up to episode 130 now, so... If it's your first time here, you've got 129 episodes to backtrack on. All right, guys. Oh, before I leave, definitely, like I did mention at the start of the show, get in touch via email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com, Facebook, Twitter at TalkingWithTK. I'd love to hear from you. Tell me where you're coming from, you know, the yarns that you loved the most, and definitely guest requests. Send them through. You know, some, some of them are huge, and I always try my best to reach out and I get as many yeses as I say no, so, but it does help me to kind of figure out who you want on the show and the type of sports that you want on the show. There's definitely going to be a mix of sports coming up. I'm thinking of kind of doing three rugby, rugby leagues, and then uh, someone from another sports. So definitely open to ideas, so definitely get in touch, even if it's just to introduce yourself. All right, guys, thanks again for your support. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.